no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Hello, and welcome to Media and the End of the World. This is Ralph Beliveau. I'm sorry to say that Adam Kroom is not with us today. He's off uh, doing his uh, holy media work somewhere else in the world. Um, but we decided that we should forge on without him. He'll be back with us again next week. Uh, we have a special guest with us today, and this is a, a pretty special program that I'm pretty excited about um, because I'm a big fan of the the idea that our our media contains our history, and it's very important that we maintain it, that we keep it. For a very long time, um, as you may or may not know, uh, media gets kind of tossed aside or thrown in the garbage as soon as somebody thinks they can't make any money off of it anymore. And unfortunately, that's our cultural history. So uh, what we're going to be talking about today is a very important piece of how that uh, cultural history can be maintained. And it's something that's happened uh, the, the guest I have in the studio today is Lina Ortega, who I've known for quite a while, actually. Thank you for coming in. Uh, thank you, Ralph, for inviting me. Sure. Uh, and she works with the, uh, I, what's the full title of it? The uh, Western History Collections. Yes, the Western History Collections at the Bazell Library here at the University of Oklahoma. And, uh, well, why don't you tell us about this project that you've been working on? The Indians for Indians radio show was broadcast from OU starting in 1941, and it went through the mid-1970s. And the show actually still exists, but it hasn't been broadcast from OU in more than 40 years. And so um, the library, the Western History Collections, have had the recordings of the show. Not every broadcast, unfortunately. We probably only have about uh, 20% of the recordings Um but it's an important collection. A lot of Native Americans here in Oklahoma remember participating on the show or they know that their family members did. Mm -hmm. And so we often had people coming in to listen to recordings in the Western History Collections. That was the only point of access. Mm -hmm. And so uh, over the years, the episodes had been copied and recopied into different formats. So what we had were a set of reel-to-reel -reel tapes um, some, of the, some of them were the original recordings. Some of them were copies from old wire recordings or acetate disc recordings from the early episodes. And so um, these media were never meant to last for decades and decades. And so some of them being between 50 years old, 70 years old, um, they're in very real danger of being completely lost to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think I don't think people understand that uh, you know because a lot of these are even reel to reel tapes, mm -hmm. the little oxide particles begin to fall off. And, they do. Yeah, and eventually it becomes kind of unusable. So, so you know this collection. I mean, it's been part of the Western History Collection for a while. It has, mm -hmm. and we had uh, we'd made an additional set of copies on cassette tapes. They also are not designed to last for decades and decades. Right. And so uh, it was very risky to continue to just uh, uh, have these on reel-to-reel -reel or cassette tapes. Um, 
So in 2018, the library received a grant from the Council on Library and Information Resources to be able to professionally have the uh, recordings digitized. So a lot of times as archivists and librarians, we don't get specialized training in how to uh, preserve and how to reformat audiovisual uh, materials. And so it is important uh, for these granting agencies to enable us to outsource that digitization. Mm -hmm. So that is how we were able to get the collection digitized. And mm -hmm. the work was done by the Northeast Document Conservation Center. So the reels were shipped uh, to Andover, Massachusetts, where they were worked on for a few months. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so the so the program is called Indians for Indians, yes. and it started in 1941. April of 1941. Okay, and who started it? It was created by Don Whistler, who at the time was chief of the Sac and Fox Tribe here in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and Whistler was also an alumnus of OU, and um, he and his family were pretty influential in building up the campus corner area of OU. So for your listeners who are familiar with OU and might go to eat a lot on the restaurants on campus corner, his mother actually constructed a lot of those buildings. Ah, okay. So uh, Don Whistler and his uh, brothers and sister attended school at OU in the 20s and the 30s, which is unusual uh, for there have always been Native Americans attending OU since OU started, but still their numbers were pretty low. Mm -hmm. And so they had grown up on the Sac and Fox Reservation south of Stroud, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. had moved to Norman uh, for better educational opportunities. And so Whistler uh, had been here in Norman for a couple of decades before he started the show, had done you know, lots of different jobs, was very well known across the state. And as I said, he was the elected chief of the Sac and Fox tribe. Mm -hmm. And so what got him interested in doing a radio program? I really don't know. Uh -huh. uh, one of his nieces has, um, I don't know if I would say she's speculating that Don was influenced by his aunt, B. Mays Berry, who was uh, a performer and very interested in, she traveled around a lot through the United States and even Europe um, doing Native American performances, even though she actually wasn't Native herself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that Chief Whistler had a really strong desire to um, advocate for Native Americans. He was very politically active. And he seems to me to have been very gregarious. That comes across a lot in the recordings. Mm -hmm. He also loved good uh, singing and dancing, uh -huh. and that, that really comes across as well. Mm -hmm. So what was the format of the program when he started it? He would start the show with his customary <laughs> greeting. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he started the same way every episode uh, where he would say, hello, friends, and then he would give his name in the sock language and... Uh, that's how he started off. It was, Aho, Nikon, Keshkikosh, Nina. Uh -huh. <laughs> so he's saying, hello, friends. Uh, this is Kesh Keshkikosh uh, speaking. And then he would start off with maybe a few announcements, maybe a little bit of commentary, and then he would introduce the guests that were there for the day. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is that they would go for about 15 minutes or so, uh, usually singing. Sometimes it would be spoken content. And... Then he would do more announcements while the disc, while the recording disc was flipped over. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever recording media was used. Uh, now, I, I remember a million years ago uh-huh. when I first started in radio that we played programs off of these like 16-inch platters that were shipped to the radio stations. And that's how the programs. So they must have had to have been you know recorded somewhere too. Same. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't. I think a lot of broadcasts were recorded and the recordings didn't survive mm-hmm. all this time. I know in the early years they weren't recorded in the first place because um, OU supported the show by providing studio space in mm-hmm. the WNAD studio in the Union Radio Tower. Uh-huh. But there was no other budget at oh. all. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there were no funds for recording disc. Mm-hmm. And actually the station manager... Um, uh, advocated with the Rockefeller Foundation and the Folklife Center at the Library of Congress um, to send blank recording disc. Mm-hmm. And then um, it took some time for them to come up with sort of a model show mm-hmm. to record on the disc to send back to the Library of Congress to um, to advocate for the importance of recording these shows Mm -hmm. and it was touted as the only native language radio show in existence Mm -hmm. so and and its title from the start was indians for indians yes um that is what whistler called it it's often referred to as indians for indians hour so you see that Mm -hmm. interchangeably Mm-hmm. Um, well, did, should we listen to a little bit yeah. of one of the programs? What we uh, inside, by the way, you can access this collection online uh, through the University of Oklahoma Libraries, correct? Right yes. at repository.ou.edu. Mm-hmm. So almost all of the recordings that we have available are available online publicly with a few episodes that are restricted. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, we're going to take a, a listen to, this is a broadcast from April 13th, 1948. And uh, this is one of the one of the episodes you can listen to in the collection, but we'll start at the beginning so you can get a uh, flavor for what the show sounded like. So here we go. Indians for Indians with Don Whistler. This is the 353rd program of the Indians for Indians, our Keshkikai speaking. Before we start on this program, which is going to be a continuous affair without me buttoning in any place, make one little announcement here. It seems that someone is always introducing bills in Congress asking for things for Indians without ever taking the trouble to ask the Indians whether they want it or not. The National Congress of American Indians has just written me a letter saying that there is now in the, in the Senate a bill, H.R. 4725, that's H.R. 4725, to confer jurisdiction on the several states over offenses committed by or against Indians on Indian reservations. The National Congress of American Indians seems to think that this bill would be to the detriment of the Indians in general and ask that you write to your congressman or to the members of the Committee on Public Land. President Shawnee, J.D. Hanson, by name, sends me a clipping from the Tulsa World of April the 2nd concerning another bill in Congress, which sounds like a fell out of the Indians. It is now before the Senate. It is H.R. 1113. H.R. 1113. It purports to give the Indians additional freedom and actually lets them have the privilege of buying liquor, but it deprives the Indians of many other rights and privileges. Incidentally, if you will send me a self-addressed postcard, I will send you the names of the subcommittee on Indian affairs. 
And here's something unusual. The big annual Sack and Fox homecoming party at Ed Mack's place has been moved from August up to June the 26th and 27th this year. And now uh, we have a group of, I think it's 14, if, I, if my arithmetic still works, 14 students and uh, two instructors here from the Pawnee Indian School. Um, Mr. Ellie Larson, the principal, is here with us. He's been here several times before, and uh, Stacy Howell, the boys' advisor and coach, who, who's both football and specialized in both football and baseball. He played uh, football at Pawnee High and at Franklin College in Indiana. I might tell you that uh, the Pawnee Indian School was the first Indian school on the air. They were here for their first appearance in the second program on April the 15th, 1941, and have been here every year at least once and uh, sometimes more. So this is about the 10th to 12th appearance of, the, of a group from the Pawnee School. And now, Mr. Larson, it's all yours. This is the Pawnee Indian School of Pawnee. Our school always listens to the weekly Indians for Indian program. We also look forward to our opportunity to share in it. This year, we have a different type of program. Instead of the usual war dance songs, our pupils will give short discussions on topics pertinent to their school work and their studies, all under the general theme of advancement made through education. As our time is limited, each pupil will introduce himself and also his topic. I am Louise Connolly of the eighth grade, and I am a Sac and Fox Indian. I will discuss how to make democracy live. I sincerely believe it is the duty of everyone to cooperate in keeping democracy alive in our country as well as in other countries. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, did much to spread the idea of democracy. But when Andrew Jackson became president, the common people came into their full rights. Jackson lacked much in book learning, but he had a keen mind and he had good judgment. He did much for the people during his years of presidency. From then on, the spirit of democracy grew. That is why I say we can keep democracy alive by teaching it and living it until it becomes a habit. We can make it a habit by keeping the mind clean and healthful and keep it working so that we will have no time for hate and discrimination to grow and develop. We can keep those, help those who have a prejudice against Negroes and Jews by teaching them that all men are created equal, that race, color, or creed should not make any difference. The difference breeds in the mind and it must be exterminated by the truth. The eighth grade pupils of our school sent a box of clothing to Germany in the earlier part of the year. We put our names and addresses on a small sheet of paper and pinned them on the clothes. The names and addresses were printed in the newspaper and since Christmas we have received many letters from Germany. Many wish to thank us for the clothing while others wish to correspond with foreigners and wanted to know all about America. Many of the students have written to these German people, and perhaps by our description of a free country, the people and their customs, they have been able to grasp the true meaning of democracy. Okay, let's, uh, we'll pause there. It's a, that is really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's very uh, political. Mm -hmm. Very. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's kind of amazing because he's making a call out to get people to respond to people in Congress about bills that are going up. He did. Mm-hmm. Um, so the National Congress of American Indians started in, I believe, in 1944. So it's still a very vital, important organization. It was in its infancy during this time. And so Whistler did... Um, he did receive their alerts about legislation that was going to affect Native Americans, and he does often talk about them on the radio show. So in another broadcast, uh, he you could tell he's very alarmed and dismayed uh, about some proposed legislation that had to do with the Indian Claims Commission, and he tells people, run, don't walk to telegram your representative. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, telegrams. That was a medium back then, too. Yes, yeah. yeah. And we actually do have some telegrams in, in the archives for mm-hmm. the radio show. Yeah. That's interesting. I also really like the uh, the participatory effect. The, yes. The, the fact that you have students who are talking about mm-hmm. their work and ideas. Mm-hmm. So is that pretty common in the in the program? Definitely. I think... I think the reason why the show is so appealing and such an incredible uh, historical resource for us now and a cultural resource as well is because um, there was no script for the show. Whistler invited a variety of people to come and participate from across Oklahoma. And so whenever they came on, they they would sing or they would speak about whatever they wanted to. And so that is why we have such a diversity of viewpoints. We have elders who are participating and then we have school children participating and in this particular episode so he talks about Pawnee Indian School being a frequent participant and a fan favorite Uh too in another episode Um, the students are generally middle school to high school age and this is one of the uh, boarding schools here in Oklahoma and it speaks to us about the boarding school experience and so these students were able to travel with their superintendent from Pawnee, Oklahoma to Norman, Oklahoma um, to participate on the radio show. And then when they were at home at school, they were able to listen to the radio program every week when it came on. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes they are singing, but in this particular one, these these middle school students are reading their essays. And it's very telling not only about the boarding school experience and what they were being taught, but also just American history in general. This is post-World War II, uh, Cold War era, and some of the um, other students' um, speeches that really comes across. Mm-hmm. I often describe this episode as the, we don't want no commies <laughs> episode. <laughs> well, I noticed as we were listening to it, I was kind of like shaking my head about this particular version of Andrew Jackson. Yes. much more controversial historically to Native populations. Yes. Yeah. So to our, our modern ears right now, or our present day ears, I guess I should say, um, the comments about Andrew Jackson are, I would even say, appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was... He's the one who pushed uh, through the Indian Removal Act in 1830 and, and really um, started the federal program of, of, of um, removal and uh, of Native Americans, from, especially from southeastern United States, but uh, really set in place the machinery of, of Indian removal. So, um, yes, that is... Um, not something that's easy for us to hear now that this is what the student believed at the time. But the other portions of, of her talk are really 
are really interesting. You know, she's she's advocating for uh, being tolerant of other races and uh, of us all doing our part. Yeah, to even for, for 1948, mm-hmm. it's pretty edgy to talk about mm-hmm. equal treatment in the way that it's being talked about there. Right, and then also, um, I don't know what to think about the the sort of being pen pals with people in Germany. Uh, was it um, being generous? You know, to a, a a World War an enemy from World War Two, um, I don't know. Just that little bit that we listen to gives a lot of food for mm-hmm. thought. Yeah, I think. I mean, the idea that they were also making clothing donations mm-hmm. to Germany. I mean, it's an yeah. interesting picture of probably what what a lot of the conditions there were like after World War Two. Yes. Um, but but also it's it's the thing. One of the things I find really interesting about this whole project because of the tendency if people are not familiar with Native American life lived then they think of it as kind of this like frozen historical artifact right and pretty clearly here it's alive you know mm-hmm. it's alive and involved in things mm-hmm. is that like when you hear it what what do you what do you think about what you're hearing as you're hearing them talk about this oh all all sorts of things um for one thing on this episode um the announcement that he makes about the ed mac powwow um that was a very, very well-known powwow throughout the state, not only to Sac and Fox tribal members, but to other uh, tribes within the state. It was created um, as a way to honor um, military veterans who had served during World War II and in previous conflicts, too. And my family, just about any Sac and Fox family, still speaks with great fondness about the Ed Mac powwow. And I remember it from from when I was a child. And it was something that the family would plan for for a long time. Most families had a permanent um, a site that they camped at mm-hmm. at um, the Mac farm. Uh-huh. Where, where is this? Um, so it is on the northeast side of Shawnee. Mm-hmm. So right now it's not too far out of town. Uh-huh. Uh, when it was started, it was... Uh, more of a rural area mm-hmm. but it was part of ed max uh, allotment mm-hmm. from uh, for when the tribe received our allotments in 1890 and so this was just he was a very uh, highly respected and well-known member of the tribe and very influential and this was something that he organized and then you know as it took off he had more and more help it, it was quite a big deal mm-hmm. yeah I, I was just curious how oh, out here. Oh, there we go. I don't know why. I'll have to cut that out later. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so Whistler was maintaining relationships with the other Native tribes that were in the state and bringing them in to participate in the program? He did. Uh, there are there are tribes that are very well represented on the show, and then there are, are a few tribes here in the state that are not represented at all. And so the Comanche and the Kiowa tribes, the Cheyenne and Arapaho, mm-hmm. Are very well represented, as are the Muscogee Creek and the Seminole, and then some other tribes that are present on maybe one or two broadcasts. And um, he seems to have had a wide acquaintance, and I think it might have started with some of the work that he was doing here at OU. Uh, he did some work in anthropology, and then um, he also worked in the construction business. And then in his political life, he um, 
leaders from different tribes would gather at different places across the state and that's recorded on a couple of the show episodes too they would uh, live broadcast from Ponca City or wherever they were having a meeting and so um, he seems to have had a a wide acquaintance Mm -hmm. this would have been in in, uh, and I could be wrong about the technology but it really wasn't there wasn't a lot of portable field recording it was a lot of Mm -hmm. studio stuff right yes primarily doing Mm -hmm. yeah and then, so when they did the music sections, did they have a facility that would accommodate a bunch of musicians and that where you could play in that kind of a context? So when there's music content, uh, there's almost always a drum. And from the photos I've seen and what people have told me, um, occasionally they would be using a hand drum, which of course is portable, but usually I think they were using a, a full-size drum like what you would see at a, at a powwow. And so I have been told that the studio was quite small, and it looks that way in the, in the few photographs that we have. It's not a large studio, and oftentimes when you have people coming to sing, it would be quite a few. It would be a whole drum group or... Um, quite a few family members and then they might have their uh, wives or mothers or sisters or other female relatives there singing with them and so it sounds to me like there's quite a crowd in the studio and they're all bunched together and um, I think that's a testament to how important it was to them to come and participate and express themselves and and share their Mm -hmm. songs with a native audience. Yeah I thought maybe we'd listen to just a little bit because this was the first program that I'd heard was this one from uh, 
sung too much anymore so I I'm not really able to speak to how much of it has been completely lost over mm -hmm. the decades but uh, definitely quite a bit where you may not hear it commonly anymore and so the variety of music in it is it's an incredible it's a very very important resource for the Native Americans in Oklahoma um, to be able to either recover particular songs or just to be reminded of them. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the way that they're sung changes over time. And so to be able to hear how it might have been sung uh, decades ago is, is something that's really important to singers. And a lot of the songs uh, that were um, performed on the show have language in them as well. So I think in a typical powwow setting, a lot of the songs have become um, more, um, I'm having a hard time thinking of how to say this. They don't use the language so much mm -hmm. um, to make it easier for an intertribal group of singers to be able to sing on. Ah, okay, that makes sense, yeah. And yeah. so that's where um, you hear the vocables coming mm -hmm. in that are that are that you hear so much in, in powwow music. And so from that standpoint, um, is it's a very valuable archive to, mm -hmm. to, to just put it simply. Yeah. And then um, there's such a variety of music too. Not all of it is what we think of as powwow music. Like this particular episode, is described as round dances, and I'm going to come back to that in a moment uh, because it illustrates kind of an issue with the collection. But there's also a lot of church music uh, from the incredible variety of, of religions that are represented. So there might be different Christian denominations, so hymns that are sung in different languages like, like Muscogee Creek or uh, Comanche or Pawnee. And so... It really, I think, for non-Native listeners to the recordings, it helps to illustrate the great diversity in Native America because I think Native Americans are seen as as being um, kind of homogenous and people may not necessarily understand the great variety in, in, um, in languages and, and in cultural beliefs and... Um, this show really, really helps us to get past that. Mm -hmm. And as far as some of the other music, there's also peyote songs from the Native American church. And so there's even a very few instances of music uh, from tribes, old ancient religions. And those are the instances that require farther consultation with the tribes affected. And so that's why a handful of broadcasts are restricted currently. Mm-hmm. What were you were going to say something about round dances? Oh, yes. So the descriptions that we have for some of these recordings, some of them are quite detailed. Some of them have very little information at all. And so as I'm looking at the description of this episode on, on the monitor, um, it's described as round dances. 
Uh, it doesn't list the tribe of the participants. It only has one participant listed, Oliver Abrams, although it's clear from the recording that there's a pretty good-sized group there of men and women. And then that particular song that we were listening to was not a round dance. Um, I'm not sure it sounds like a flag song to me, but it's also possible that it's some sort of honor song. Mm-hmm. But it's not a round dance song. Mm-hmm. And so uh, moving forward... I think that the digitization of this collection was just the first step. And moving forward, I would like to see our descriptions improved um, so that not only non-Native audiences who are not familiar with different aspects of Native culture, but also um, the different tribes themselves have an opportunity to better describe the episode that their people participated in and maybe even potentially add some context. like. What does that song mean? Um, why was it important? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you mentioned that they mm-hmm. also might change over time in terms yeah. of language and things yes. like that. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, there's one song that I do still hear at powwows quite a bit. Uh, it's familiar to me. But then I've heard it sung um, with language on a couple of early episodes And it sounds quite different to hear it in the Kiowa language. And I'm really hoping that I learn more about the origins of this song pretty soon um, because it seems to have been composed by a woman, which seems unusual to me. Mm -hmm. And she's honoring her sons who were serving during World War II. Uh And so she's honoring them and then also probably doing this as a way to comfort or soothe herself. Uh, obviously being very concerned about their safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What other reactions have you gotten? Have you gotten much of a public reaction to this material being available? Um, Some. So I've heard from another um, radio broadcaster that he was familiar with the show anyway, but he's also, um, now that the recordings are available online, he's been using the clips more in his broadcast. Mm-hmm. I just found out about that a couple of days ago, and I was just thrilled to oh, hear that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Where is it? Where is he? Um, oh, now I don't know. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> that's okay. No, I'm glad. I'm you know, Regardless of where it is, I'm mm-hmm. glad word's getting he's out. He's here in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I think he's... I want to say he's based out of Muskogee, but I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Yeah. So, um, so this is the existing collection that people mm-hmm. have available, except for the ones that you said where you said there's rights issues that make them something that can't be made available yet. Right. Um, so, uh, I, one of the things I think you know when you mentioned, I think about like the Smithsonian. Uh, project of going around and collecting uh, spirituals and you know some of the work that they've done it's really important for preserving cultural history Mm -hmm. you know I just think this stuff is extremely important for doing that and I'm really glad that uh, that you're able to get the the grant funding to do it because if it you know the more it continues to disintegrate the you know we have that problem with film and video too right where over time you know it's just going to decay and uh, you know one of the kind of one of the pieces of magic of the digital environment is that it can create something you can copy exactly as opposed to copies that lose quality every time you make a copy. Mm-hmm. So That was also the benefit of having uh, the digitization outsourced to professionals uh, who, who do this all the time is uh, they not only digitized from the reel-to-reel tapes, they did some repair work and cleaning on the 
on the tapes before they even started. And then once they had the digital files, they did some audio engineering to improve the sound quality of the recordings. Um, because there's quite a difference on some of the broadcasts where we digitized it ourselves at Western History Collections without the skill to really improve those recordings. And sometimes they're almost, or they, they are inaudible in some cases. Mm -hmm. So in the collection that's online, what does it go up through? Because you said the, the program that in this goes up through the 70s? Yes, so our last recording is from 1976, but it's kind of strange. Um, most of the recordings that we have are from the 1940s uh, during the Whistler years. And then we've got some from the 1950s, and it tapers off during the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And then we've got three or four from the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So most of the participants who are still alive now, who actually participated on the show themselves, are they were students here in the 1960s. And so um, I know of a lot of individuals who participated, but we have no recording of them. Mm -hmm. And so in late March, we're going to have a symposium here at OU where we have two or three of those participants uh, mm -hmm. speak and share their experiences of being on the show and helping to host it as mm -hmm. students of the of the Sequoia Indian Club here at OU. Ah, what, who took over after Whistler? Whistler passed away in 1951, mm -hmm. and the Sequoia Indian Club took over sponsorship of the radio show, and so... Um, they were the Native American, the main Native American student group here on campus. Mm -hmm. They had been already for decades, and then um, um, in the late 1960s, early 70s, I think the Sequoia Club kind of phased out, and the main group became the American Indian Student Association, which is still active today. Um, the longtime OU staff member Boyce Timmons was the sponsor of the Sequoia Club and so he was he was vital he was instrumental in keeping the show going mm -hmm. he's the one that that helped with the scheduling um, wrangled the students to be sure that they would you know show up and and do their part and so oftentimes there was a student who hosted the show there might have been times when other students would read the announcements. The announcement time got lengthier and lengthier as the show went on because the radio show became um, sort of a community calendar for Native events across the state, especially for the summertime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a phenomenal collection, and I'm really happy that you were able to come in and talk about it. So Thank if you. people want to listen to it, where do they go? Repository.ou.edu. And it's a fantastic collection. And thank you for coming in and talking to us about it. Thank you for the opportunity. Sure. And uh, that's Meeting the End of the World, and we'll be back. Thanks.